Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesday at 10 p.m. on ACB Radio Maine, or wherever you get your podcasts. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Welcome back to Pride Connection. I'm one of your co-hosts, Anthony Corona. I am joined by Gabriel lopez Cafati, president of Blind Pride International. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Pride Connection during Pride Month. Our other co-host, Leah Gardner, is enjoying Pride festivities. So she'll be back with us, not next week, but the following week, because next week, as many of you know, is the ACB, American Council of the Blind, first ever virtual convention. And I know that all the listeners out there have already registered and are chomping at the bit to be a part of what will be a history-making convention. Just to let you guys know, we have an amazing wine education piece that will be led by our own Gabriel I am holding a guided meditation. We have seminars on the dating apps, using Google Forms, planning for your retirement. We will be celebrating Blind Pride International's 20th birthday, 20 years as part of the American Council of the Blind and serving the intersectionality between low and no vision and the LGBTQ community. We are so very happy to be able to celebrate virtually. And of course, next year in Phoenix, we'll have a bunch of drinks together. But I could go on and on. You know where you can find the programming on acb.org. Please join us. Right now, I'm gonna throw it over to Gabriel for his president's message. Gabriel? Thanks, Anthony. Yes, we're all excited with our first virtual convention ever. And I... I'm going to use a little bit of point of privilege just because it's (laughs) yours truly will also be conducting a relaxing yoga on Friday so that everyone can wind down from convention and by invitation only a tradition, a staple of VPI Dare to Share. So if you're interested in participating in Dare to Share, that is a private event where you will need to RSVP, contact us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org if you're interested in registering and we will be sending you a zoom invite as always that is a safe space for people to talk about anything and everything time flies this is our last program for pride month of 2020 and uh we've had so much fun we've had so many interesting experiences with everything going on out in the world besides quarantine and shelter in place. We've had all the upheaval happening between Minneapolis and Atlanta. We have been very vocal, not only about celebrating pride, but also about upholding every other underserved community in our great nation and making sure that we fight not only for LGBT equality, but for equality in general 
for African-American brothers and sisters, for everyone who feels underserved or undermined, please make your voice heard. BPI always offers a space where you can make your voice heard and we will amplify that voice and make sure that your rights and your person, your humanity is brought to equal terms because we're all human and that's what matters. Without further ado, we're very excited to close with a bang. We are joined for this, our last Pride Connection during Pride Month by none other than Councilwoman Rosemary Ketchum from West Virginia. I'm not going to introduce her. I'll let herself tell us a little bit about herself. All I'm going to say, we're proud to have her on Pride Connection, and uh, we are eager to dive into conversation. Welcome, Rosemary. Hi, folks. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. We're so happy to have you. As Gabriel stated earlier, we have celebrated the history behind the LGBTQ movement. We have celebrated where we are now, but with Rosemary, we're going to look to the future, and the future looks beautiful. Let's talk a little bit about the T in LGBT and the future. Rosemary, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became Councilwoman Rosemary. Absolutely. So I grew up in rural Ohio to a pair of really wonderful blue collar parents. And, you know, growing up transgender anywhere can be difficult, but I think particularly in, in you know, middle America, rural America, mm -hmm. it can be really tough for folks. So, you know, I grew up and moved to Wheeling when I was 16 years old, around 2010. And I, I didn't feel connected to the community that I grew up in. And I really wanted to do good work. Uh, and, and I really wanted to do work that mattered to me in, in, in so far that I could make a difference in my community, but also, you know, develop relationships and, and make some really good friendships. So moving to Wheeling, I jumped into the community organizing scene uh, pretty quickly, uh, advocating for issues around racial justice and LGBTQ equality, uh, so menstrual equity and so many other issues um, that are incredibly important. And I loved working as a community organizer because you know, I, I kind of love the idea of being scrappy and underdog and, you know, working really hard to kind of actualize the issues that I cared most about. However, you know, we realized soon enough that the obstacles we experienced, the biggest obstacles were not necessarily the institutional or structural problems that we faced. We had answers for those. We had bills and policies and data to you know, lead us to the right answer. I realized that one of the biggest obstacles to actually you know, realizing our vision were the elected officials uh, that mm -hmm. were you know, less compassionate or thoughtful or progressive than we would have uh, wanted them to be. So I didn't first decide to run for office. I tried to convince all my friends that they should run. And you know, sooner or later, I realized that you know, if, we, if we wanna take the next step as you know, uh, community organizing, you know, as people who really care about issues, uh, running for office is the most logical, um, efficient way to do that. You know, West Virginia, we're a national and international program. 
West Virginia, I think, gets a bad rap. There's been some really progressive measures happening in West Virginia. Do you feel at this point that your being elected is part of that progressive movement in the state? I hope so. You know, I have lived in West Virginia for more than a decade and not being from here, I think, you know, gives me a unique perspective. But when I talk to other people who aren't from West Virginia, they have some incredibly distorted and Mm -hmm. oftentimes unflattering images or beliefs about the state of West Virginia, the people here, what we do and, and how we behave. And you know, for the longest time, I did not understand it. And I was offended and upset. And then, you know, I started to work really hard to change that narrative. So it wasn't until I really traveled throughout the state of West Virginia, living here in Wheeling, we're in the northern panhandle part, we're about an hour from Pittsburgh. And so we have more access to things than other folks have throughout the state. We are the only state in the entire nation that is made up of 100% Appalachia. We are 100% mountains, no matter where you go. And wow. although it, it is beautiful, that also provides a, you know, a, you know, geographical obstacle for so many folks, especially downstate. So, you know, traveling and meeting people throughout the state, I really fell in love with the humility and the grace and compassion that folks really expressed in the way they lived their lives and how betrayed people in West Virginia are. I mean, honestly, not, not just by folks outside of the state who you know, hold stigma, but even betrayed by the elected officials who live here. And so I'm not running for a statewide office. I, you know, I'm here in Wheeling City Council, but you know, one of the biggest obstacles we face are the beliefs that others have about the state of West Virginia. So you know, we are really moving toward a progressive future, a 21st century future. I just think we have to, you know, in so many ways, give credit to the people who, you know, really paved the way for that. I couldn't be here (laughs) if it weren't for so many other folks uh, who made this possible. So I I hope that we can slowly, you know, shift the, the narrative for folks in West Virginia. If Virginia itself is for lovers, I would say West Virginia is for the future. Yeah, (laughs) I love it, I love it. I also like that, yes, because I agree with Anthony, Rosemary. We've had, I myself, when I've heard of probably opportunities coming across in West Virginia, I kind of dismissed it because I've always, you know, like Anthony said, the reputation that we get. Mm -hmm. And then when you really start following serious sources, of credible sources of information, you start realizing that, wow, West Virginia is much more progressive than than many other states. Yes, we are the um, the original rebel state, um, not the rebel <laughs> state, um, which is a very different issue. But we, um, you know, we were the first state to secede from the Confederacy. We said no, thank you. Yes. Um, and that didn't, of course, solve many of our systemic problems. But I think it was the first step into a progressive future for us. I always believe in first steps. To me, first steps, to begin with, it's the most difficult one. It's, it, it always makes you feel so vulnerable and sometimes even under attack. Mm-hmm. So to me, first steps are never to be undermined. First steps are just the beginning of, of great things to come. Can I ask you if we can dive back into the, the journey of Rosemary before she got to West Virginia? For sure, for sure. So, you know, 
I grew up in East Liverpool, Ohio, only about an hour away from Wheeling. And I grew up uh, with you know mom and dad and two younger brothers and an older sister. And I think you know, being, I knew I was trans very early on, five years old maybe. And my, I think my parents, they knew something was different even earlier than I did. But uh, you know, I'm 26 years old. Uh, you know, it was in the late 90s that uh, you know my parents were kind of recognizing that my behavior wasn't you know similar to my younger brothers or the other boys that they knew who were my age. But they didn't have the language in their toolbox to kind of identify and describe that. So you know, one of the only real cultural introductions to the LGBT community for our family was Will and Grace. And it, no. it, it really wasn't meant to educate. It was enter, meant to entertain. And, yeah. yeah, and there weren't many kind of trans characters uh, uh, displayed or portrayed you know, in that show. So I think my parents for a long time thought that I was going to be gay and they kind of built, you know, prepared themselves for that. And, you know, I, I, I entered therapy when I was about 11 or 12 just to, you know, help my parents, you know, find more information and resources and, you know, kind of find support outside of our home. And it was my therapist when I was uh, about 12 years old that, that gave us the, the term transgender. And I think for my parents, it was kind of a light bulb because the word gay just never felt right. I mean, we knew gay people and they, they didn't, you know, they didn't want to be women. Like that wasn't the, you know, that that's not how, you know, a, a gay person is. And so it, it never fit for me. And it didn't make sense for my parents until we, you know, had the language in our toolbox to, you know, really express what this meant. It didn't make it any easier, I think. And in some ways, I think my parents were even more frightened and more, you know, concerned because we knew what a world looked like with gay people in the, you know, early mid 2000s, we didn't really have a world of trans representation, especially positive trans representation. I mean, in so many, you know, media portrayals, if there is a trans person, even oh, no. at all, you know, they are a sex worker or they are addicted to drugs or they are, you know, runs the gambit. And that I think really terrified my parents. And rightfully so, like, I couldn't imagine, you know, being a um, middle American, you know, mom and dad with, you know, a trans kid, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, that was my adolescence. And I, you know, I was kind of unapologetic about it. I was not a timid kid. I was very extroverted. And I, you know, I, I think my motto as a kid was, you know, um, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. And so I just did what I felt. And, you know, <laughs> it was kind of liberating. And I think I just, my parents you know, put guardrails up. They wanted me to be safe, but they did not, you know, prevent or, you know, kind of uh, snuff any of my, you know, self-expression. Wow. Amazing story, Rosemary. I do need to jump in and, and, and ask you a question. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, timing is amazing because you mentioned a word that just rang a bell in the past, you know, probably say week or so, um, at the core of our organization, our parent organization, we have had a lot of discussions around language. And I heard you say language. Um, could you share a little bit of how important it was or how, how, the, how much it determined the path that you and your parents followed once you were able to get acquainted with the appropriate language to match your situation? 
You are absolutely right. I'm, I'm glad you, you picked up on that. You know, language is a tool. Language is a resource. And literally, if a person cannot describe or express themselves in, in the appropriate language, uh, you cannot be liberated in your experience or in your culture or in your community. It's very, very difficult. And so if, if I weren't given you know, the, the language to really express myself, I don't know what I would have done or who I would have you know, turned out to be. And you know, some, some language is liberating, some you know, requires a lot more work. But mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly relevant right now because, you know, there are so many folks, especially, you know, white cisgender folks who have never used words like racial justice before. They've never had to think about it. They've never really had to consider it. You know, even the word privilege is something that for so many folks is kind of uh, alien and, and they're like, I don't understand mm -hmm. it. And yeah. I think learning a new language like anything is uncomfortable and you're not going to get it right every time and you're gonna say the wrong things, sometimes literally mm -hmm. or figuratively. Um, yeah. and, uh, and I think that's what we're experiencing right now, a serious kind of growing pain. You know, I've, I've tried to learn literally new languages and it's very difficult. And so, you know, the language of racial justice, I think, uh, and LGBT equality, for people who are not part of that community in a, a formal way uh, or a direct way, I think it's a, an incredible learning curve. And that's okay. You know, I, I try to uh, meet people where they are. I think that's a really important way to approach it and mm -hmm. try to identify whether, you know, these folks are, are just ignorant or they're bigoted. There's a, a very fine line between people who want to learn, but really aren't going to get, aren't getting it right or don't feel like they understand it versus people who really lead from a dark place and aren't interested mm -hmm. in learning and aren't interested in, uh, you know, growing or developing and, you know, those people have, I think, I think it requires uh, lived experience for them to really get to a place of, you know, welcoming knowledge. I, but I do think, I think you're right. I think it starts with language. How do you present yourself when you're speaking to older generations who may not understand the language itself and may not understand the path that you've had to take? How do you present yourself? What language do you use? Great question. So first, I try my very best to understand what their fears are. And I, you know, I work in mental health and I have a, you know, I went to school for psychology. So I try my best to understand where they're coming from and, and, and what their level of understanding is. And most people I found are really afraid of being outcast. Most people are very afraid of feeling alone or like they're not part of something else, like they don't belong. I think belonging is one of the most universal human experiences. And it's something we all want to be a part of. And so for people who feel like they don't belong in this 21st century social justice warrior world, rather than you know, trying to you know, admit that they you know, feel uncomfortable, but they're trying to learn, rather than doing that, many people become defensive and they try to defend what they believe and also know is likely wrong. Confirmation bias is a huge component to this. You know, people will pick out information that already confirms mm -hmm. what they already believe. And so I kind of start from a place of, all right, you know, I'm not going to be able to lecture them to in insight or enlightenment. That's not how it works. But what I can do is try to lead from by example and, and use language they understand. So that, that's not easy. 
So rather than kind of using acronyms that they don't understand, like even I take it for granted because I say the acronyms LGBTQ, you know, a hundred times a day, but for somebody who who stumbles over the acronym every time they say it, I should probably find a new way to frame it or to, you know, provide it. That doesn't mean they shouldn't learn that language, but, you know, being able to meet people where they are is super important. So I, I feel like I've been very successful, especially in a place like West Virginia, trying to lead with kindness and patience for people so long as they're willing to learn. We obviously use this, this show, this podcast for education purposes, as well as, you know, to spread the message and celebrate amongst ourselves and our allies. Our allies are very important to us. And feel free to tell me that this is not a question you'd like to answer but I think it would be very helpful to some listeners who are allies and who may be listening for the first time. Can you tell us a little bit about, you You said you went to a therapist and, and at some point the light bulb went off. It wasn't gay. C- can you tell us, when did you realize that the body you were in was not representative and what what that realization looked, felt, and, and maybe even sounded like if we're going to talk about, since we're talking about language? Yeah, for sure. I was really young when I felt a a kind of disconnect or something was incongruent between, you know, how I felt, how I perceived myself and how the world kind of saw me and what the world expected from me. And, and, you know, so, but I didn't, I think express that verbally in a very eloquent way. You know, I just led with behavior as children do. So, you know, my mom has plenty of stories of me running around the house in my dad's long shirts and belting them at the waist and, you know, being asked to be called a girl and not a boy. And, and never in kind of an antagonistic way, but just in a, I didn't understand why it couldn't be that way, my mom would describe it. So, you know, growing up, uh, you know, human beings, we really begin to identify our gender identity uh, around five or six years old. And, you know, for me, that was uh, very much the time where I began to acknowledge that I felt different and behaved differently in some respect than the other boys my age. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough to talk to folks who aren't trans and, and try to explain it. And I don't, I don't know a single trans person who's found a perfect way, but the best way to explain it is being transgender is like being uh, right-handed in a left-handed world. And you're like, you know, it feels right to use my right hand, but the world is built in a way that tells me that's wrong or not allowed or deviant. And yet it's just second nature. I don't even think about it. And the scissors are built the wrong way and the desks are built the wrong way. And the whole world is that way. And literally for uh, left-handed people, that's the way the world works. And, you know, you kind of walk your whole life trying to tell people like, why can't I just do this? Like, this feels right to me. And so, so many uh, trans people who don't actualize or express their gender identity, they live their entire lives feeling like they live in a world that isn't built for them and, and that they have to kind of accommodate their whole life to this kind of structure that was built for them, these rigid, you know, gender roles. And I was lucky enough to not 
succumb to this societal pressure. I think because I, you know, uh, grew up in the you know two thousands, late nineties, early two thousands, the world was very different then, you know, than it was thirty years prior. But it was never a light bulb moment. I think the you know realizing the language was light bulb, but the feeling was very mm-hmm. uh, kind of gradual and you know slowly became you know, more intense as you get older, because as you get older, you're expected to follow the rules and Mm -hmm. boys don't wear eyeliner unless they're in a rock band. And, you know, (laughs) um, so, you know, it's a very strange world to grow up in when you are transgender because everything looks and feels different. It's amazing to, to have uh, such an open, we, we thank, Thank you for for such an open and candid <laughs> attitude towards towards oh. us and our organization. As Anthony said, one of the things we do is educate and and spread the word. To me, and this is just my personal feeling. I always love my transgender brothers and sisters. Yeah. But besides love, I have a great deal of admiration to you because I I come from. Just to share a little bit with you, Rosemary, I come from a Latin American country. I grew up, I was born and raised in a Latin American country, Catholic and uh, a family, <laughs> very, very, uh, you know, half Hispanic, half Arabic. So mm-hmm. imagine both <laughs> triple, whatever, whammies you want to call them, a lot of conservatism. So coming out as gay was very difficult, it was a long process that took me through through many, many instances of, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I wish I could have avoided, a, you know, a long-term, very, very closeted and very toxic relationship, depression, anxiety, you know, the yeah. whole works. <laughs> so I can only imagine the, the courage and, uh, and the determination that it takes for you to take the first step and and go with it. It is amazing. And, and to me, uh, transgender people are an example of commitment and honesty courage. and definitely courage, absolute courage. But what I'm, the word that I'm looking for is true to yourself. You are so true to yourself that there's no barrier that is big enough to prevent you from coming to terms with who you really are. And that to me is my God, hat off its admiration at its biggest. Thank you so much. So you had that experience of finding the language, but then you had to present yourself. You had to figure out how to follow through with the transition. And if I'm not getting the terminology correct, please correct me. But, you know, when you had to take those steps and, and, you know, I'm sure the, the parental guidance and support was amazing, but they can only hold your hand so far. You know, yeah. you have to take those steps in the world by yourself. Many, most times. What what experiences when you first started to transition? What experiences did you have, and were they affirming? Did you think twice about whether or not you wanted to live in that truth? Right. For sure. I think there isn't any person who looks back on their teenage years and is like, you know, satisfied or, you know, <laughs> yes, totally amen to that. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, 
you know, my adolescence was, uh, you know, definitely a rocky road of, you know, self-awareness and growth and, you know, just trying to be insightful. And, you know, one of the other gifts my parents gave me, you know, in addition to, you know, taking me to therapy and, and helping me in that respect was also enrolling me in homeschool. And not every person, you know, is fit for that kind of curriculum, but I think I, I thrived by being able to kind of learn at my own pace and I think grow and develop my own self-image where I was comfortable and without having to compare myself to, you know, people my age, my peers, or having to kind of play the rat race that is, you know, growing up in a high school. So, you know, while I was living in my own bubble, you know, essentially growing up, I, I read absolutely everything I could, you know, and I think, you know, for me, being able to de- develop my own self-confidence was really important, but not having positive images of trans people was incredibly impactful. Cause I mean, this was maybe 2009, 2010. And I mean, it, it, no, it pales in comparison to what we have now. But I mean, I remember kind of thinking when I was a teenager that I probably will never lead a quote unquote normal life. I, I may never have a, 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 you know, a, a job that I love or respect or, you know, I, I may never, you know, find a significant other. I had all of these mm-hmm. misconceptions of what, you know, what, you know, being trans was and what it meant to grow up and, and be trans. I never thought, my God, I, I don't, I might as well just, you know, not transition or not, you know, be transgender or kind of hide it. You know, for me, I thought there's, I couldn't, like, there was just no way. And, you know, I, I, I think I've been pretty unapologetic about it. And, you know, trans people are really the, probably perhaps the, the, the greatest example of self-expression and, and not being able to do that mm-hmm. was just not an option for me. And so I kind of succumbed to the fact that it wasn't going to be easy and, it, and, you know, my life was going to be like a, you know, melodrama. And, and I think, again, most teenagers believe that <laughs> for themselves, unfortunately. <laughs> And it wasn't until I really, you know, entered my late teens um, and early 20s did I really understand that, wait a minute, that's crazy talk. And I'm totally going to have all of everything I wanted. And, you know, the world really opened up for me then when I went to college. And so I, I totally empathize with, you know, trans folks who, without those positive representations of trans people, you know, not leading tokenized lives. Like, I love famous trans folks, but that's not the life I thought was ever even close to possible you know i really would have benefited from seeing a trans person like being an accountant and like living their lives the most boring Mm -hmm. way possible that would have i think helped pretty significantly but yeah i I definitely grew out of that pretty pretty quickly that is an awesome example for so many of us here and listening to you rosemary trust me it's impactful because those same words that you said to yourself or you thought to yourself back in the day were the same words that I thought to myself yeah. in my case being uh, blind and gay yeah. you know I had all those same thoughts I thought I'm never going to be able to fully develop as a professional as an individual I'm never going to be able to marry or meet a partner of my life or fulfill my dreams all those thoughts and and it is amazing how 
once we have that change in attitude and like you said we become unapologetic and yeah. that's that's where i i love that word because i feel that unapologetic is a word that goes hand in hand with pride <laughs> and that's that's yeah. usually the explanation that i give to pride to people who ask me about yeah. pride why pride why lgbt pride and i tell them because we have been apologizing by being in the closet by denying our our true self by denying our self expression or who we are we have been you know in a way apologizing to the world for mm -hmm. something that we shouldn't be apologizing we have been apologizing for who we are so i love that you use unapologetic as a word to symbolize a, a path to follow in terms of being true to oneself and also reassuring yourself that you are capable and that you will have the same opportunities as everyone else. Yes. Yeah. Well, we have a politician, a new politician, <laughs> and it would behoove us if we didn't talk a little politics. But before we jump to that arena, <laughs> I'd like to give Rosemary the chance if you could say one thing to parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters, community members of someone who is finding their their light bulb, who is about to or becoming or on the road to transitioning, what's the one thing you'd want to tell the community's parents, brothers, sisters? Mm. First, I would say that fear is not the boss. So many folks are afraid of you know what it means to be trans or LGBT and not not oftentimes in a bigoted way being afraid, but oftentimes in a genuine fear for safety or expression like mm -hmm. my parents. And yeah. you know, I think that as LGBT people, I have learned that we are some of the most resilient people on the face of this yeah. earth. You know, mm -hmm. not because we're special, but because our lived experiences have prepared us in a way that many other people have not been prepared for better or for worse. And I would also say that, it, you know, in my experience, the most powerful thing has been the ability to embrace vulnerability, being able to, you know, be open and vulnerable with someone in a way that's uncomfortable. I think there's kind of incredible power there because the way our world works in regards to gender roles I think everybody is in some way insecure or vulnerable about their own gender expression or gender role, regardless if they're LGBT or not, because the, Amen. yeah, the structures yeah. That are so rigid, uh, rigid and ingrained and embossed in our psychology, our psyche. It, it feels almost like a religion. Like you couldn't, if you even considered expressing yourself in a different way, then you know the wrath of whatever <laughs> is going to come down on you. You know, I'm fascinated. Um, I'm fascinated by LGBT people, but in many ways, I'm more fascinated by cisgender straight folks and the way they mm -hmm. kind of live out their gender identity. And, and in some ways, never even consider it, and then in other ways, are afraid of it. And yeah. our self-expression as you know LGBT people. There's no, it's unabashed, it is unapologetic, and there's no fear. Like, we are proud, proud. And unfortunately, I think a lot of straight cisgender folks are not proud in their gender expression. They're afraid yeah. of it. It is, yeah. mm -hmm. they can't step out of it or, you know, 
be flexible. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with that. And so if I were talking with somebody who was helping another person with their transition or they're coming out, I would say embrace vulnerability. It's really important. Wow. Beautiful. One of my favorite quotes comes from the author Madeline Langle. And she says, as children, we're open and we're vulnerable, but we're told and taught that when we become adults, we'll no longer be vulnerable. There's no need for it anymore. Mm. But we, we need to be vulnerable all our lives or we lose the magic of living beautifully. And that's one of my favorite quotes ever. So when you said the word vulnerable, it buzzed inside me. We'd be remiss <laughs> if we did not dive a little into politics. And by the time this airs, it'll be two weeks from a landmark Supreme Court decision. Yes. Can you give us a, a few thoughts on what that means to you personally and you in the political arena? Yes. So we've had two incredible landmark yes. decisions. This has been, I think, the most convoluted Pride Month I've ever <laughs> had yeah. Yeah. of living through. And so, and, and, you know, so first off, we had uh, an incredible and unexpected for some people, um, SCOTUS decision, a 6-3 decision in favor of uh, protecting LGBT folks, especially trans folks in workplaces across this country. And I say unexpected because this is the most conservative court that I've seen in my lifetime. And in, in, mm-hmm. I think Mine too. times, yeah. And the majority opinion was written by Justice Gorsuch. And so yep. to, to, in a world that seems so partisan and no one is working together and it feels embarrassingly glacial, I think that was a kind of a modicum of hope to see that. And yet we still have so much work to do. I, I try to, all my straight cis allies who are so incredible and, and share posts and are the best, whenever there's a, an incredible SCOTUS decision, you know, they, they share posts as if, you know, the, the, wor- the work is over. Like we finally did it. We crossed the threshold. And I wish I didn't have to t- say, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like, the bucket of water. Scale. Yes. yes, because they're so proud and, and, want, and they want to celebrate and they should. Uh, trans and LGBT folks are still not, you know, protected in housing across the nation and things like this. But that was still, regardless, a powerful, powerful move. And then the other powerful SCOTUS decision was protecting childhood arrivals through the DACA program. Also, very unexpected from the Supreme Court. So my hope for this country has been somewhat re-energized because of those two cases. What are you working on politically yourself? What are your goals? Yeah, so we ran a very grassroots campaign here in the city of Wheeling. I, I definitely didn't run to make history. We ran to make a difference. And, you know, a few of the things that we really focused on when we were door knocking and, and you know, engaging voters, homelessness has been a, a chronic and systemic issue in the city of Wheeling for years now. And with COVID-19, our issues with chronic homelessness have been compounded because the spaces they would typically occupy are no longer available, are no longer open. So, you know, we are going to have to build some, I think, holistic and comprehensive solutions for this. And, and it's one of the reasons I ran for office, because I didn't feel that our city government was doing enough to address the problem. And, and not only does it present an economic problem, but it also presents an inherently moral problem with 
the way that we, you know, conduct ourselves here in the city. The, our moniker, our city moniker is the friendly city. And there's no way we can be proud of that phrase when we have, you know, countless homeless people living in our community. So that was one of the most important, you know, campaign issues I ran on and something I'm very excited to continue you know, vacant properties and potholes and stop signs are always, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the sexiest issues uh, in local yeah. <laughs> yes. um, And so I had, uh, of course, my fair share of conversations around those. And one of the most important issues that has come up and, you know, maybe 30 years too late is racial justice and what we as a city can do to promote racial justice while dismantling and reforming the institutions that are within our city that may also enable racism and mm -hmm. uh, discrimination. So we are, you know, I think particularly well-placed as a community to handle these, these issues uh, around racial justice, because I, I completely believe that, you know, grassroots change and the opportunity to evolve and to reform institutions starts in our cities and our towns and our neighborhoods. It will not start from Congress. It will not start at the president. We know yeah. that. I mean, we've agreed yes. centuries for that to happen. <laughs> uh, real change does begin with our mayors and our city council members. So I think we have a lot of untapped power to create spaces of inclusivity and equity. And so I hope that we can be a, a case study for that here in the city of Wheeling. I really like, I really liked everything you just said. And I, I don't want to poo-poo or push, a, push <laughs> aside, you know, the prevalent theme of what's going on right now. But I do want to ask you, because it is so prevalent in the LGB, mm -hmm. definitely, but most importantly in the T part of our community, mental health. Yeah. How, how important is it to start from the bottom up? And do you have any ideas of what COVID might teach us in, as to move us forward in mental health and especially with, with our trans transgender youth who are disenfranchised and, and I mean, the suicide rate is, is horrible. It's, it's staggering and, and it needs to be addressed from the bottom up, like you said about, about race relations. I have been uh, a mental health advocate uh, for quite some time now. I'm the associate director of a mental health facility here in the city of Wheeling. And I truthfully believe that mental health is a foundational component to so many of the chronic and systemic issues that we face as a country. We will never solve these issues from a systemic level or institutional level unless we address you know, the mental health crisis that our country is experiencing right now. And again, that starts uh, with ending uh, stigma, um, especially in regards to you know mental illness and and having conversations about you know treatment, you know there's you know there's a broken arm uh, example that you says you know when you get a broken arm you get a cast and everybody signs it and they want to get pictures with you and it's a whole story that you you know tell at parties, but when we you know when we experience depression or anxiety or you know trauma it's not something we talk about, not to other people, definitely sometimes not to ourselves. And mm -hmm. so I think cities should absolutely be responsible for ending stigma and promoting, you know, positive mental health discussions. And, you know, we have a particular issue here in the city of Wheeling. We had a hospital 
which occupied an enormous footprint in our city and in my district. We had a hospital completely um, shutter its doors uh, maybe a month before COVID really hit and or a few months before COVID hit. And it occupied the only inpatient psychiatric unit within 75 miles. And wow. so what happened then was that our law enforcement officers were tasked with transporting people in crisis to that other hospital 75 miles away. And for me, the hardest thing to admit and to deal with is that oftentimes law enforcement is the first defense for someone experiencing a mental health crisis. We don't often call, when we know somebody's experiencing a mental health crisis, we might not first call an ambulance, but a police officer. Mm -hmm. And police officers are not prepared to do that work. I mean, I, I know that we can train them. I know that we can do very important things, but many, many officers, as we can see, are not prepared to do the social work component of the responsibilities they're given. And so, you know, mental health is comprehensive and incredibly complex. And I think it, I think it does start by you know, leading by example. And then the next step is providing the resources and it's expensive. I mean, in comparison to our military budget, it is a you know drop in the bucket, but unfortunately we are far less likely to support access to mental health services than other maybe less life-changing services. So, you know, it is hard to be a mental health advocate because so many people don't consider it to be a priority, especially in elected office. But I think with COVID, we have particularly uh, recognized how compounded the issues are yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, and what the pre-COVID world looked like and now the post-COVID world. The unresolved trauma that we will experience for decades to come, I think it will be immeasurable. And especially for our young folks who are, are now ha- have to live in a world where you can't hug each other and you, there, there, there are no parties and unless you're in Florida, I guess, but you can't, <laughs> <laughs> um, they're going to be fine, I guess. Uh, hopefully they're, you know, uh, wearing masks, but yeah, I think we are. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm As, Anthony up. and I are, but I don't know. <laughs> in Miami. It's, yes. yeah. I, you know, I think uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be old enough to understand and take this information in and to know the world before COVID. But I'm afraid that unless we prepare for it, you know, we will have some seriously unresolved issues, you know, as a result. The city of Willing is very, very lucky to have you. And I, I hope one day that we'll be able to have a conversation where you are on the state or national platform. Oh, absolutely. I see that path in you. And, and I want to, I want to ask you a question and, and, and I could disguise it as for those younger minority folks who are out there trying to go into politics i was i was going to ask you in that way but i'm not i'm not going to be i'm i'm going to be very straightforward that innocent starting in politics folk is myself <laughs> i am a naturalized citizen as i uh, told you i grew up in in central america mm-hmm. and um haven't been uh it's one of my hugest and most uh, biggest accomplishments to become a a citizen of this wow. wonderful nation it uh, it had been my lifetime dream since I was a kid and I made it I made it happen um I became a citizen in the year 2015 just in time to enroll I was the only one after my oath ceremony signing up 
Uh, and I'm going to say it, I don't hide it. I was the only one signing up for uh, voter registration and I went directly, no independent. I went directly to the Democratic Party. And in 2016, I was eager. I was hungry to start. I left a job that I had just to become a fellow with the Democratic Party and work for Hillary. And I did everything from phone banking to voter registration. And my favorite was canvassing. So I could identify with you when you said I could relate when you said about knocking on doors. (laughs) I was there with my guide dog knocking on doors. It was fabulous. It was an amazing experience. And I was absolutely in love with a life in politics until election night. (laughs) And then I crumbled. I was devastated, went into depression, and not to get so deep into, you know, part, you know, partisan politics, but just if you could share with us before our time runs out, because I know we're getting close to the hour, before our time runs out, I'm sure that you must have had also difficulties and challenges and obstacles in your path, mm. but you made it and you, and, and you, you set yourself a goal and you, you are an elected official and you know i i would like for you to tell us a little bit about your journey and any message of hope that you have for those out there myself included <laughs> well thank you for sharing that it was powerful when i was growing up i really wanted to be a journalist because i admired <clears throat> the work of people like Diane Sawyer and Ann Curry I, you know mm-hmm. they expressed so much compassion and empathy and they had an innate ability to tell stories that helped people. And that's, I mean, I remember, Mm. you know, researching schools when I was 13 and 14, and I thought this was what I wanted. And I subsequently realized that, you know, journalists have to remain incredibly unbiased and they can't promote their own opinions. And, and I don't have that much self-control or willpower. So I thought that might not be the path for me. And so I hopped right into, you know, community organizing not long after. And, I was able to be partisan and to really, you know, represent my values in, in, in the party of my choice. And that was the Democratic Party, which is not perfect and frustrating. And my gosh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it hurts me every day. But I, you know, it's the party that most aligns with, with my values. And, you know, I have had some of the greatest experiences, you know, working for c- campaigns and candidates although virtually every campaign I've ever worked on has been a losing campaign. So there's a fair share of uh, tears and, <laughs> and regret. Um, <laughs> I totally um, uh, relate to, to your experience. But, you know, I think that politics and community organizing, they, for, for the longest time, I thought they were separate and in very different worlds. But mm-hmm. the behaviors and the vision, I think, for both positions are completely parallel and completely aligned, or should be. I yeah, think. they should be. So yeah. All, yeah. And so all of the, you know, behaviors and the beliefs that I thought were kind of incompatible with politics actually were exactly compatible and, and exactly the ingredients that made, I think, a, a perfect uh, elected official. And so when I realized that, I thought, then I should absolutely run. And... I, I now I'm a national delegate for Joe Biden. You know, I didn't never expected that to happen. And so while our country is not in a place I believe it should be, and there's no way to prepare for the future because 
our world seems so confused and frustrated and apathetic in so many ways. Yes. While all those things are true, I think we have so much potential in this moment as you know, people living in, in this country who care about the core values of this country, freedom mm-hmm. and liberty and inclusion. I think that we are at an inflection point and this will either divide us further or bring us apart. And I have a feeling it's gonna do both, but you know, moments like this, we're chatting about something positive and about the future of our country. This I think is what really binds our future and, and will keep us strong. So it's hard to stay hopeful, I, I understand that, but I think that the future is very close and that you know, we have to stay incredibly resilient and, and more persistent than ever. Thank you. Well said. Thank you for that. <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot in two, in two directions. First, I would love to ask you to come back a year from now and let's talk about your yeah. year and our year in politics and in pride. And also, since this is the last Tuesday of Pride Month, can you tell us what pride means for you, especially in this dark time, both COVID, racial and, you know, the orange menace in the White House. What does yeah. pride mean to you? <laughs> wow. For me, pride represents love and self-love and being, like we said before, unapologetic about who we are and how we present ourselves in this world. And pride is powerful and pride is a fuel. And I think that You know, when we are able to embody pride, I know many folks who are LGBT who have yet to really embody what it means to be proud and they're Mm -hmm. on their journey. And and I think think so many folks will get there. But for me to get to proud, to be proud and to be prideful uh, of who I am, you know, it it takes a lot of self-work and it takes a lot of time. And I think for me, pride really means growth and resilience. Why does your vote count? And why did every L, G, B, T, Q, binary, androgynous, why do all our votes count, Rosemary? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So the two phrases that I hear most often are my vote doesn't count and why bother, it's rigged anyway. So while I have Oftentimes, you know, related to those sentiments, especially, you know, November 2016, I won my race by 15 votes. That means, you know, say that again loud. Yes, I won my race by 15 votes. And that is all that separates us from the future that we want to see. And so, I mean, I still get chills even thinking about like the opportunities that I have been given were gifted to me by 15 people I may or may not know, strangers potentially, who I think have indirectly or directly set in motion the gears for a progressive future. And so your vote counts more than you may even know, especially in local elections. So learn about the candidates, investigate, ask questions, demand answers, and most importantly, vote. Thank wow. you. I, I'm still having chills with with everything you said, but I, I'm still in disbelief with that number, 1515. Wow. Wow. 
Rosemary, we cannot thank you enough for coming. And I absolutely will be bothering you about a, <laughs> 51 weeks from now. You said you'd come back. You said you'd come we back. We will. <laughs> and most likely, if we have any other initiative that we think you could uh, be a part of or enjoy, we're having a lot of, like I said at the beginning, we're having a lot of language usage, uh, education. We're having a lot of, we're, we're trying to, like I've always said, put the T in blind LGBT pride. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we're incorporating a lot of uh, activities and engagement aspects for our trans members um, because everyone is looking for a home, for a space, and especially for a voice. So yeah. I, I can also can't thank you enough for, for being such a strong and resilient voice. Tell them where they can follow you. I am on every social media platform, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And luckily no one else on earth has my name, I feel. So <laughs> everyone <laughs> is at Rosemary Ketchum. Spell it, we're blind. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. R-O-S-E-M-A-R-Y. K-E-T-C-H-U-M. Awesome. Well, and we have the American Council of the Blind. We have a West Virginia affiliate. So we'll make we sure to pass <gasps> well, along your information. Please. I would love that. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Rosemary, thank you for joining us. Everybody, once again, thank you for listening. I hope you found this as wonderfully informative, fun, and politically driven as we did. We will see you again in two weeks. Remember, participate in convention. We'll be back in two weeks. Rosemary, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. You have an awesome day and you stay safe. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org and join our conversation. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. They will find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, 